0: The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Greetings, Geek! and welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini episode 55.5. Yep, these are the episodes where we get into all the nitty gritty details we didn't have time for on the main episode. Did you have some fun with Jason Inman? I know Michael did. Yes, got to meet one of his podcasting heroes and he's still walking on air. But I gotta say, hey Michael, you've been podcasting with this guy over here for years. Where's the praise? Oh, only confusion and disbelief that he is dealing with such a maniac but no jason we want to thank you so much for taking time off from geek history lesson to be part of our show we'll definitely have you back you know jason even said that he had won a wizard contest and michael himself probably felt like he had won the lottery having him as a guest on the show so let's get into cap's kooky contests Before we kick off with the contest here I did just want to go over to the contest winners section because there was a DC Underworld Unleashed contest back a few issues and the whole deal was they wanted you to find Phil Colligan of Wizard somewhere in those books and I was like flipping through all of the tie-in issues I was trying to find him and they said he'd be wearing a Wizard shirt and I just I did not locate him at all yet right here it says if you Look on page 19 in DC's Underworld Unleashed number two. You'll find our own assistant price guide editor, Phil Colligan, in the merciless hands of the new Copperhead. Well, Brian Tomer of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, heroically found Phil and scores a solid piece of original Underworld Unleashed art by Howard Porter and Dan Green. Plus, a thank you hug from the rescued Phil. So, yeah, I guess it did happen and it was there, and now we gotta track down that issue because that is a piece of wizard history. But on to the contests. All right, this first one coming up here, I wanted to mention that in the middle of it, okay, is an ad for the BMG Music Service. So this is not the Columbia Record Club, but the very similar deal, right? Says 11 CDs for the price of one with nothing more to buy ever. Also available on cassettes. So you can get cassettes and CDs. Here are the main artists that are being promoted, okay? You got Hootie and the Blowfish with their cracked rear view album, Blues Traveler, with Four, and their self-titled Blues Traveler. Okay, you've got Dave Matthews Band Under the Table and Dreaming, Collective Soul, and then KRS-One. I don't know KRS-One, but Goo Goo Dolls, A Boy Named Goo, that is the only album of all of these that I own, which is kind of bizarre. Now, this is a double-sided ad and order form that you have, so they also have ACDC Ball Breaker! Uh, Ace of Bass. They have The Sign and The Bridge. Friends. Music from the TV series. For some reason, I own it. Uh, Van Halen Balance and Van Halen Live right here, right now. TLC. Crazy Sexy Cool. And Travis Trick. Greatest hits. So hey, at least they got some country music in there. Talk about the hot country. But there are so many titles on this page, I feel like I'm gonna have to share it. Because you guys remember these. I just didn't know that Wizard got in on the game of advertising them. But speaking of the game somebody who was playing and winning at this time for sure was billy tucci with she so this contest says crusade entertainment presents the she haiku contest hey not only is she one of the most popular comic characters around these days but she she's also japanese so we figured now's as good a time as any to get multicultural and salute she in the tradition of her homeland So how are we gonna do that? Easy, we're gonna write a poem about she, but not just any poem, we're gonna write a haiku, the traditional Japanese form of poetry. What is a haiku, you ask? Simple, it's a poem that has three lines, none of which have to rhyme. The first line has five syllables, the second line has seven syllables, and the last line has five syllables again. And guess what? We want you to write a haiku about she. Here's an example. She uses her sword and leaves her mark on the wall each Tuesday at 4. Huh? Okay, that's a real crummy example. Actually, it downright blows. But you get the picture. Now do yours. The best haiku, that's plural in this case here, will walk away with some great loot. Now, I gotta mention, the only thing I knew about a haiku back in the day was the fact that in Wayne's world, when they get picked up by the network and there's the recreation of Wayne's basement where they used to film and they're looking down from the control room, Garth says, does anybody else think it's weird that we're looking down on Wayne's basement? Only, that's not Wayne's basement. Then Wayne is just like, Garth, that was a haiku. That's as much as I knew about haikus in 1996. But here are the prizes, as they refer to it great loot! grand prize one reader will receive his haiku incorporated into a personalized original she drawing done by she creator billy tucci and as if that weren't enough to inspire the poet in you we'll even kick in a swell as hell she cold cast statue second prize 10 runners up who are pretty poetic but not quite walt whitman will each receive a copy of the she senraiku hardcover edition this contest is sponsored by crusade entertainment a bunch of poets at heart So, the interesting thing though, you know, we've mentioned that with the entry forms, Wizard keeps adding these survey questions you might call them. So at the bottom they say who's your favorite muse? So that's kind of an interesting question. Do you like the band Muse? Uh, they're pretty intense. I don't mind their music at all. It's kind of fun. But, you know, somebody who was a muse for me and a muse specifically in the movie Xanadu was Olivia Newton-John. So she is definitely my favorite muse. Yes, Kira. All right, let's get into the legalese here. It says contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Crusade Entertainment, and their immediate families, or anyone who's been published in those snooty poetry magazines like Diane Chambers used to read on Cheers. <laughs> there you go. Hey, another one of my favorite movies, Troop Beverly Hills with Shelley Long. Get a Shelley Long reference. I don't mind. All right, let's see what else we got here. Uh, Offer void were prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. None of that nasty steed limerick there once was a man from nantucket stuff either <laughs> i feel like wizard had to have a couple of those in their chamber around this time all right let's get on to the next contest all right malibu comics presents the phoenix aftermath trivia contest whoa just when you thought it was safe to go back into the comic store suddenly the star-consuming planet-destroying phoenix entity is back back like a well like a phoenix from the ashes we guess but this time it's popping up in malibu's ultraverse yeah yeah, that phoenix is one mega powerful character, and you, yes you, just might be the one with enough power to contain it, if you can answer the following questions. After all, knowledge is power, you know. And so, we have a big picture of Foxfire here, who we've been talking about lately, and on our social media, we actually shared the Foxfire centerfold that was in Wizard Magazine. But let's see how this one's supposed to work. How to play. What you do is answer these easy trivia questions. Get them right, and you could be one of the lucky winners to get some cool prizes. Number one. Which Ultraverse character did the Phoenix first possess as a host body in the Phoenix Resurrection? Genesis. Two. Name the world-devastating alien race in Phoenix resurrection aftermath and b their one weakness three which character from the original 1993 exiles miniseries does foxfire encounter in foxfire number one so here's the thing when i was considering covering this for a mini episode i went and read these comics and i can't even tell you i just read them a few weeks ago and i should be able to have this at the tip of my tongue and i do not so i don't know what is going on here with the way that this whole crossover was written but it was a hot that did not stick. Now, rising from the flame, the prizes. Grand prize, one good-looking reader will have his or her likeness taken from a photo that you supply after your pick appear in a future issue of Foxfire and will also receive a page of original Phoenix Resurrection Aftermath art by artist John Royal. Second prize, 10 winners will each get the complete set of Phoenix Resurrection books, all 10 of them, and a copy of Foxfire Number 1 all autographed by at least one of the creators. Third prize, an autographed copy of the new Foxfire number one and it'll even be the variant edition oogla 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 this contest is sponsored by malibu comics a company with the power to consume worlds well to be consumed by another company and then be shelved and hidden away forever so here we go with the world-rending legal text contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Malibu Comics, and their immediate families, or anyone from Phoenix, Arizona. We figure you'd have an unfair advantage. (laughs) Having actually lived in Phoenix, Arizona at one time, I did not see very much Phoenix-like activity going on out there, but man, was it hot. Alright. Finally, offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Residents of Scottsdale are perfectly eligible. Tucson, too. All right, all right. You Phoenix people can enter as well. Don't start yelling. (laughs) And I used to work in Scottsdale, so I guess they had me all covered there. Everybody from Arizona, of which there were a lot of comic book stores and fans, you are ready to play. All right, on to the next contest. Yeah! Why? Because this is the Geffen Records and Wizard Press present the White Zombie Astro Creep 2000 Ways to Win Contest. Yeah, more human than human. <laughs> Gotta love you some Rob Zombie. Says, enter an astroblast through the stratosphere on a collision course with destiny and maybe even prizes. You could win an original Rob Zombie work of art. A White Zombie Autograph Guitar, White Zombie Autograph CDs. How to play. Just complete the intro form and mail it in do it 2000 times if you want for 2000 ways to win just be sure to write each one no photocopied submissions and mail each one separately i will say that i actually did get to see rob zombie in concert at ozfest back in 1999 that was you know definitely during his hellbilly deluxe solo phase but man what a show but just to go on a little bit more of a rob zombie tangent here because he does have a lot of music and things that i enjoy uh If you have never listened to the We're a Happy Family Ramones tribute album, you really should check that out because the covers on that are amazing. Just the bands that are involved, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Kiss and any number, but Rob Zombie does a killer version of Blitzkrieg Bop. You know, we've been hearing that song a lot in movies these days, but his reinvention of it, it just is so cool. So if you've never checked that one out, I highly recommend it. Anyway, the list of prizes, grand prize. One grand prize winner will receive a CD copy of White Zombies 2 Cataclysmic Hit Disks, La sexorcisto Devil Music Volume 1, and Astro Creep 2000 Songs of Love, Destruction and Other Synthetic Delusions of the Electric Head, each personally signed by every member of the band. But wait, there's more. We'll also throw in a guitar autographed by the entire band and an original work of art from a White Zombies CD liner created by the master Rob Zombie himself. Runners up, Ted Runners up will receive a CD copy of White Zombie's current release, Astro Creep 2000, and you know the rest, autographed by the entire band. Alright, here's more legal than legal, more legal than legal. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Geffen Records, MCA Records, and their immediate families, or anyone behind the facade of this innocent-looking bookstore. What? (laughs) What is that one about? I don't know. What horror movie would that be? Ah, Anyway, here we go. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Oh, there's no joke. What a rip. Now, I do want to mention, though, on the entry form, they did add one more thing which asks, more bass or more treble? I'm always up for more bass, man. You're gonna shake your belly! Or, you know, that movie, I Love You, Man. Slapping the bass. Alright, here we go. Last contest. Wizards of the Coast present It Must Be Magic. Hey, you've been reading all about that groovy Magic the Gathering game. You know what it's about. You've seen the art. Now, here's your chance to win it. How do I do that? It's a breeze. Just let let us know who your favorite Magic the Gathering artist is. You've seen the gallery, you've probably seen the cards, you know these guys, so tell us who your favorite is. Randomly selected entries can net the senders some magical prizes. Grand Prize, one reader will receive a booster box of Magic the Gathering Super Swell Ice Age Expansion Set, plus a copy of the Magic the Gathering Pocket Player's Guide, second edition, and a Magic the Gathering card autographed by their favorite artist. Second prize, 20 lucky readers will each receive three booster packs of Ice Age, and a copy of the Magic the Gathering Pocket Player's Guide, second edition. Now, given the current market for Magic the Gathering cards, especially these vintage ones, you gotta imagine that that is worth a lot of cash these days, a signed card by the artist, just any of this vintage stuff from back in the day. Now, let's see what it says here. They, Instead of the legal jargon, as they often call it, this is the legal dragon. Come on. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> And it says here, contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Wizards of the Coast, and their immediate families, or employees of the Wizard Air Freshener Company. (laughs) Anyway, let's uh, see what we have next here. Offer void were prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? But that trick never works. All right, now let me see if I can do it in the voice. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. I can But that trick never works. Ah, I'm no June Foray. That was more Mickey Mouse than Rocky the Flying Squirrel. But I gotta tell you, I do have a special connection to the world of Bullwinkle. In front of me on my desk here actually is memorabilia from Bullwinkle's Family Food and Fun Restaurants. If you guys didn't know about these, they were only in certain areas of the United States. I was lucky enough to have one in my hometown of Irvine, California. I loved it so much. They had an animatronic Rocky and Bullwinkle show. They had a fountain and lights and music show plus a full-on arcade. It's where I played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and X-Men and The Simpsons, like all those classic games. And so I collect memorabilia from that place because it's so rare. But there is one still operating in Oregon and they might be building one in Ontario, California. I'm so, so thrilled and I hope it happens. But anyway, if you remember Bullwinkles, hit me up on social media. I'd love to know about it. But uh, also, on the Bullwinkle vein, because it's just on my mind, do you remember how Dave Coulier was always doing Bullwinkle impressions on Full House. Well, there was one episode I remember distinctly because then Michelle decided to get in on the action, so she was testing out her material, all Jesse and Rebecca's twin boys, and she's like, hello. I'm Michelle Winkle. Anyway, cracked me up. (laughs) But before we close out here on the contest, I do need to do a little bit of a follow-up because as you'll recall, I am throwing a virtual Batman Returns vintage birthday party for my 40th this year. We put it out there a couple weeks ago, trying to get everybody to guess my favorite line from the movie, and it was really hard. First round did not go well. Lots of great lines, not mine though. And finally, uh, one of our dedicated listeners from the earliest days, our first, patron back when we had Patreon Mark McDonald finally put in his guess and he got it that line was you stupid corn dog yes I love it when Selena Kyle is just berating herself and she calls herself a stupid corn dog multiple times in the movie and I actually got the junior novelization for my son to read in preparation for my birthday and he was reading in it because I told him about the contest he's like dad I found the corn dog line she says it like four times in the book and i was like whoa so that was cut out of the movie more lines of her calling herself a stupid corn dog made me so happy all right well congratulations mark and we will see you at the party but we will see you in our next segment now it's time for robin's reading rainbow Rocky Robin, yeah Rocky Robin. Alright, so this time around, we are going to be talking about Spider-Man, Legacy of Evil, which was a one-shot by Kurt Busiek and Mark Texera, is one of those books I've actually reread many times over the years since I bought it at my local comic book store in 1996, but it wasn't until this read that I had a full appreciation for it. Back then it was just, oh, another painted book like Marvel's, sold. I didn't realize actually at the time even that it was by the same guy who had written Marvel's, nor did I connect the art. to the same guy who did those cool Ghost Rider issues five years earlier. I mean, these guys were top talent at this time. I just saw painted Spider-Man book looks cool. I will say though, this time around I made a lot of connections but getting into the history of the book real quick, Wizard 56 actually has a first look into this and they were kind of hyping it. And What they said here is, Spider-Man Legacy of Evil, which features Texera's first full-length painted work, came about a year ago when Marvel editors Danny Fingeroth and Eric Fine were planning a series of backup stories for the Spider-Man books under the banner Dynasty of Evil. One of the stories evolved into the Legacy of Evil storyline, and Marvel eventually decided to turn it into a painted book. So I just think that's kind of interesting that we kind of have a a different idea, and then they said, well, we'll just do it as a one-shot then. And hey, a painted one at that. But let's get into the story here. So as it opens up, Ben Urich is walking to meet with Liz Allen slash Liz Osborne uh, to get details about the Green Goblin for a book that he is writing covering that whole history. But as soon as we turn the page, there's just an explosive double-page action shot of Spider-Man flying through a wall that has been blasted to pieces by two stoic ladies on goblin gliders. And so we're off to the races. Now, after subduing Spider-Man and Yurik, a third goblin lady takes little Normie Osborne from the hands of his mother, and then they all fly off into the New York skyline. Spidey wants to pursue them, but the young boy would be at risk of harm in battle through the Big Apple, so instead the hero agrees to begin an investigation with Ben Yurik to find a way to return the boy home. Although at first, he takes off on his own. So, from this opening, we realize actually that the story is going to be told from Yurik's point of view, just as Busiek did with Marvel. So Ben Yurik is basically the stand-in for Phil Sheldon in this era of the Marvel Universe. Now, Texera's art is not quite as idealized as the Alex Ross painting style. The colors are much more muddy and brown and green tones. I do think that Spider-Man's a little bit more muscular than I would imagine him to be and often like kind of distorted the musculature but overall it looks pretty good. Ultimately though this style, this sheen that is over it gives it a 70s cop drama movie look. You know it's very The French Connection or Dirty Harry. I really like it though. It gives it a nice edge without going as far into disgusting as the ruined story from a year earlier or some of the wilder Bill Sienkiewicz art. It actually is reminiscent of what the 70s Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man TV show felt like, but like if William Friedkin was directing it, (laughs) which would have been wild. It should be mentioned though, this is all taking place in the modern 90s continuity of the comics despite that throwback aesthetic. So getting into the story again here, Liz Allen slash Osborne's stepbrother, the Molten Man aka Mark Raxton enters the picture And realizing the Goblin women must have been connected to the Osborne family legacy somehow, they have Harry Osborne's body exhumed to confirm that he is still dead and not the one pulling the strings. And then they continue to interview various associates of the Osborns in hopes of finding a lead, which they get nothing. For those who don't recall or didn't know, Harry was the Green Goblin for quite a while, but he was eventually poisoned by that Goblin serum and he died as part of a story in Spectacular Spider-Man number 200 in 1993. So this is kind of following up on that. This is a sequel to that big storyline. Meanwhile, Spider-Man is off on his own shaking down local criminals, you know, i.e. beating the crap out of them. I mean, this is a very rough Spider-Man. He's obviously emotionally distraught by all the feelings that are being brought up, the ghosts of the past that are being dredged up. And while demanding this info on who is working for the Green Goblin, he just can't seem to accept the fact of what all these criminals are telling him. There's saying the same thing, the Green Goblin is dead. Nobody's working for him. It's not a thing anymore. So ultimately, Spider-Man then meets up with Yurik and Raxton and they go over the history of various Green Goblin imposters, like they talk about the Hob Goblins, the Demo Goblin, you know, Spidey agrees to take Yurik to the site of infamous battles between the Goblin and Spider-Man over the years, where Texera actually draws the action in kind of a translucent style, almost as if the Ghosts of the hero and villain are reliving the encounters over and over again even though, you know, Spider-Man's still alive. Uh, But it's a very cool effect. It looks interesting. The whole section, though, is more of a greatest hits reinterpreted visually. You know, you get references to the death of Gwen Stacy and even Spectacular Spider-Man number 189. That was the blue 30th anniversary hologram cover one. There was this whole story in there where Harry had this creepy confrontation with his family and Spider-Man, they're all sitting at a dinner table Table, he's like just maniacal trying to force them back into a happy domestic life as like a daddy goblin like it was it was kind of a creepy story so when they when that came up I was like oh I remember that now at one particular warehouse site the goblin women arrive again to attack our trio of investigators with the multi-man protecting Yurik from their blasts and after realizing they're not superhuman women but robots Spidey just starts breaking them to pieces you know just gets creative <laughs> can I mention though also how strangely and eerily alluring these goblin gals are or were uh to me before they started exploding like the 14 year old adam was very conflicted reading this story i'm like ah it's creepy but uh. <laughs> anyway there is an interesting bit in the middle of this battle where ben Yurick says that all accounts suggest that harry took over as the goblin soon after he started college which is then refuted by the molten man and he's like norman was still the goblin during that that time and blah 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 and so it's just interesting because I love how Busek adds a layer of reality to the story and that the journalists were operating on available information but obviously those who were personally involved had the real story. Now having exhausted all possible leads the crew returns to Liz Osborne's apartment to search for a mind control device Spider-Man remembers the goblin had used on him once and sure enough they find marks on Liz's head showing she had been mind control controlled into giving away her son to the Goblin's minions. She was a part of this plan the whole time. Upon that discovery, these Doctor Octopus like tentacles like shoot out from the wall and the heroes wrestle with them and destroy them before they end up following Liz into a tunnel she has escaped through that opens up into a cavernous control room with giant monitors displaying Norman and Harry amongst images also of Green Goblin on various monitors. So you think of it kind of like Arnim Zola from Captain America the Winter Soldier mixed with Max Headroom, like you know, with the Ronald Reagan and Ayatollah TV screens in the Cafe 80s for Back to the Future Part 2. These are AI programs who have been set up by Harry to carry out his plans of turning little Normie into a new green goblin to carry on this family legacy of power. So he's got Normie in this, like, translucent cube hanging over a vat of the Goblin serum. So they're all trying to figure out how are they gonna save him, what are they gonna do? So Spidey actually ends up getting drugged by a dart in the melee but pulls it together enough to save Normie at the last minute as he's falling towards this vat and they all run out of this hideout before it explodes and all the evidence is destroyed and that is the end of the main adventure but there's a neat wrap up at the end where Yurik asks Spider-Man what happened between him and Norman Osborn that changed the Goblin's M.O. from crime boss to revenge obsessed lunatic. Spider-Man kind of thinks back into these painful memories of Norman and Peter learning each other identities in that classic story, and he refuses to divulge the details, and Yurik says it's just as well, quote, I don't need more stories, I'll never write. He actually makes reference to some Daredevil adventure that he was involved in, some more secrets that he knows of superheroes, but he has chosen not to publish them. Now, in the epilogue, we see Ben finishing up his manuscript for the Green Goblin book when his teen nephew, Phil, shows up to ask if he can read it. Of course, the irony of all this is that in the comics, Phil Yurik actually became the new heroic Green Goblin at this time, in a short-lived series that got cancelled as Marvel was approaching bankruptcy and trying to cut costs. Uh, and I, actually this is also very reminiscent of the end of Marvel's, if you'll recall where the bicycle-riding is revealed to be Danny Ketch, and he meets up with Bill Sheldon, and of course that's a child we know grows up to be the ghostwriter of the 90s. So music definitely has his signature storytelling bits, but they're fun. Now as I said at the start, I've read Spider-Man Legacy of Evil a lot over the years, but I enjoyed it even more this time around. I especially appreciate the art style and everything that went into it. Overall, it's just, it's a great one-shot, and I always am on the lookout for a great one-shot. Again, can I reread it? Do I want to go back? And the fact that it feels very timeless, it's just dealing in the classic stories of Spider-Man history that are always told and reiterated upon, like classic mythology, even to this day, right? So, anyway, that is my review of spider-man legacy of evil if you've never checked it out i suggest finding yourself a copy and taking a read very interesting very visually exciting to check out and now it's the segment you've all been waiting for let's check out our mort of the month so this time around It's Mary, M E R R Y, the girl of a thousand gimmicks. And she looks like here, based on the illustration, what if I love Lucy? Lucille Ball was dressed up as Power Girl, like a more modest version of Power Girl, because she's got the white tunic and she's got the red cape. She's got, you know, blue gloves and everything. It's really interesting. But what it says here is okay, where do we start? Mary Creamer was born to an acrobat cat thief, was stuffed in an orphan. When the old man was busted by the cops. Hey, red hair, orphanage, insatiable appetite for human flesh? <laughs> She's Annie! She was eventually adopted by the parents of Sylvester Pemberton Jr. This can't get any worse, aka the Star Spangled Kid, crime fighter extraordinaire. Dear God, it just won't stop. She soon started teaming up with her super sibling, becoming the girl of a thousand gimmicks, and eventually died from stress. <laughs> good wow died from stress what in the world i want to go back and read some star spangled kid comics now are they on archive.org they've gotta be mary creamer (laughs) wow that is definitely a mort the strangest thing about her picture i will mention also is she's holding a gun but it's one of those trick guns from the old days that shoots out a flag and it says bang you're dead so i was like oh so as we close out here, I wanted to check out the picks section, no longer picks from the wizard's hat. This is the wizard's must-read comic books coming out in February of 1996. So the first one here, you know, we talked a lot about Heroes Reborn and the fact that Mark Waid and Ron Garney weren't going to be on Captain America anymore, but they had a milestone issue with number 450, and it says here, in Captain America's last story arc, and the first by the new creative team, Cap teamed up with the Red Skull, found Sharon Carter, foiled the bad guy. So everything's back to normal, right? Think again. As a result of those actions, Cap has been branded a traitor, explains writer Mark Wade. He has a hard time defending himself when the first words out of his mouth are I allied myself with the Red Skull, and I was hanging out with Sharon Carter, an ex shield agent, who's in the country illegally. But this is Captain America, right? Hasn't he built up a little faith and goodwill with the American people after saving our collective butts about a jillion times? He has, Wade admits. These actions alone wouldn't convict him, but there's another piece of evidence that absolutely damns him. And naturally Wade teases that in order to find out why Cap becomes the man without a country for this four-issue arc, we're gonna have to read the book. But that's no hardship, as Wade and artist Ron Garney have turned Captain America into a comic that everyone's talking about, and they're not just raving about the stories either. Readers are reacting spectacularly to Ron Garney's artwork, Wade says. What I like about it is that he doesn't draw like somebody else. He's got his own style that's not just a flavor of the month knockoff. Sharon Carter plays a pivotal role in the story too, he notes. She makes a great counterpoint to Cap. He really believes in this country and she doesn't believe in it at all. One other thing, Wade, who begins scripting the Avengers with number 400, mentions that Cap fans might want to check out Avengers number 398 and number 399 on which Wade is advising a word to the wise. But untold tales of spider-man number eight we were talking all about kurt Busiek, and i just reviewed him in robin's reading rainbow but let's see what they're talking about in this story the best thing about this title besides the price is that it works on many levels telling tales from spider-man's early years it's unrelated to the current spidey continuity and presents single issue stories that can be both understood and enjoyed by new readers yet it also weaves around those already told early adventures offering insight and enhancements for those familiar with spider-man's silver age years every issue's designed as a good jumping on point, and this issue is no exception, says writer Kurt Busiek. For those unfamiliar with the other Spidey titles, it's got everything that makes Spidey cool. The secret identity, powers, supporting cast, villains, action, jokes, and witty remarks, the whole deal. But for those familiar with his past, this issue explores an important character in a way we haven't seen before. At the story center is a new character called the Headsman, a high-tech executioner who swings a pretty mean electrified axe. He joins with the Enforcers, a mob-run group that wants to rub out the wall crawler. When none of them knows is that the Headsman was created by industrialist Norman Osborn, who wants to gain control of the mob, says Busiek. The story gives longtime readers an early look at Osborn, who later became the first Green Goblin, but it also gives them and first-time readers the chance to see a new character in action for the first time. The story is told from the point of view of Harry Osborn, Norman's son, and Peter's future roommate. Harry wants to connect with his dad, who's becoming distant and abrasive, Busick explains. Between those ill-fated efforts, Harry finds time to date a high school classmate named Gwen and Stacy, all that for a buck and a penny back too. And all we hear is great praise about Untold Tales of Spider-Man. So if you love the classics, there they are. Now, speaking of classics, this is really interesting. For Daredevil number 351, they have an image of the cover. And that is not the red costume. What does it say here? D-Man's back! D-Man's back! Oh, no. That guy sucks. And he's bald. No one likes bald men. We all know they smell weird and they're sterile and... Oh, wait, that's D.D.? The original Yellow and Black Daredevil is back for good? It's a new beginning for Old Hornhead as he starts his life anew again with Foggy Karen Page and quite possibly some guy called Matt Murdock. You know, not only is this book finally readable again, but it's pretty darn good. Alright, coming up on the next mini-episode, here's a little tease for you. I'm going to be talking Hitman with frequent guest on these mini-episodes, Chris Bailey, who is a big fan of that DC comic series. But he was coming out here in February, and what they say is, meet Tommy Monahan. He's just your typical metahuman assassin for hire who goes around hunting down other metahumans. This ish starts a lovely little three-parter where Mr. Man is hired to bust into Arkham and off the Joker. You know what that means. Yep, a certain flying rodent ain't gonna be too happy. That was by Garth Ennis and John McCrea, and uh, we're actually gonna be covering the arc that starts after those first three issues, so look out for that. Alright, now a book that I'm always trying to convince Michael was great was Scud the Disposable Assassin and just listening to this description should convince all of you. For Scud the Disposable Assassin number 11, as confusing as the X-Files, yet ten times funnier, this ish sees Scud battling a whacked out astronaut werewolf who plans on devouring the Earth. Now that's just darn rude. It's up to our hero, that's Scud, to stop this astrowolf in time or Jeff, Drywall, and the Earth itself are doomed. Hey, maybe Cap Wolf's gonna show up and save the day. By Mondy Carter and Rob Schraub. Schraub says, quote, The werewolf releases his master plan. He wants to be the first werewolf on the moon. So he gets onto the moon, and as soon as he sets foot on it, he devolves from a werewolf form to a baboon form to an iguana to a mudfish to a jellyfish to a single-cell amoeba. It keeps on going down and down and down. And then he turns into a black hole. So there's this giant black hole with the intelligence of the human being that it used to be. Scud's gotta figure out a way to defeat this giant werehole. Ha <laughs> ha! <laughs> Isn't that a great insult, don't you feel like, for a werewolf? You werehole! So, I mean, but just the inventiveness in those comics are fantastic. Rob Schraub had some awesome ideas. So, <laughs> if you have not read Scott the Disposable Assassin, I definitely recommend you check it out. Also going out at this time, something I'm sure you read was Marvel vs. DC number 3, and this was the lead-in to Amalgam. We talked a lot of Amalgam with Jason Inman. It says here, Are you ready to rumble? Oh. Baby, this is it, kids. Your votes finally get turned into action. It's the five big DC-Marvel brawls, i.e. the main event, to decide the fate of both their universes. Finally, finally, we'll get to see Captain America kick Batman's ass up round his ears. Plus, you'll witness the birth of a brand new superhero who will be shared by both DC and Marvel. How the heck are they going to do that? Read the book and find out. By Ron Mars, Claudio Castellini, Dan Juergens, Paul Neary, and Joseph Rubenstein. So yeah, that's pretty wild, right? I mean, that was something everybody was like, who's gonna win who's gonna win and uh, yeah unfortunately Captain America did not end up winning that battle it's just the way it goes now also we were talking about strangers in paradise so let's find out what was going on at this time things are moving fast Kachu gets out of the hospital to discover that she and Francine have been evicted from their house and now must share a one room apartment the problem is that Freddy's trying to convince Francine to come back to him even though he's real close to marrying some other woman and David forces Kachu to tell them exactly where the two of them stand. Whew! Great stuff by Terry Moore. Yes, lots of soap opera, drama, but the art in those books, so fun, so interesting. All right, and we can't get out of here before checking in on the X-Men books, so on Candy X-Men number 331, it's the ultimate showdown between your mutant pals and that ice-cold babe, the White Queen. But she's kind of good now, isn't she? Unless, maybe the White Queen's not really our Emma Frost, but an evil Emma from a parallel dimension where everything is a dark, twisted version of our reality. Hmm. Nah. By Scott Lobdell and Jumpin' Joe (laughs) Mattarera. So I would love to know if that was the real story if there was a, a dark Emma Frost instead of a dark beast but isn't she leading Generation X at this point? I don't know. This sounds like there was a lot going on but anyway thank you so much for checking out this episode of Wizards Half but of course we want to stay in contact with you so tell us what you're reading over on social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram and now you want to know right who are we bringing on for episode 56 who is this mysterious wizard staffer who will be joining us well it is none other than ben morse a fan like us from the 90s who made good and actually became a writer and worked in the wizard offices in the 2000s then he went on to work for marvel for many more years after that Michael actually didn't make it onto that one, so it's just me and Ben chatting it up, going through an issue of Wizard. He had so much inside of it. He's just been connected to the world of comics for so long. It was a ton of fun, so I hope that you will enjoy it. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded.